Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi and Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. Chris, Coolabar has started harnessing its quantitative research capability to forecast when Australian herd immunity will arrive and when our borders will open up. We've also done some interesting analysis on why the super strong jobs data is not necessarily as robust as it seems. Let's have a talk about all this new research. Yes, Singers, Coolabar has attempted to forecast both the advent of herd immunity in Australia and when governments will be comfortable opening up our borders to both inflows and outflows of vaccinated human capital subject to strict testing protocols at arrival and departure ports. So we've been leveraging off the extant empirical vaccination trajectories of comparable countries around the world. And we projecting as that more than 90% of Australia's adult population should be vaccinated sometime between January and February 2022. This marries up importantly with a potential federal election in March 2022, following which we believe governments could start opening up the country via travel bubbles with select nations in the middle of next year. Yes, Chris, this has significant ramifications for policymakers, given that open borders are likely to eventually precipitate a substantial positive labour supply shock via much higher population growth, which should ultimately more than offset the negative labour supply shock that resulted from the combination of closed borders and around 334,000 foreign workers fleeing Australia after the advent of the COVID-19 crisis. Any increase in wage growth in 2021 and 2022 could be counterbalanced by this positive labour supply shock. I agree, Yingers. Outside of the outbreak of war between China and the US, perhaps the single biggest event risk that policymakers and the RBA specifically should be thinking about right now is when Australia's ironclad borders will finally open up to new human capital flows in and out of the country. This is certainly something that we've been trying to turn our minds to a little more thoroughly of late. Once the borders are open, Australia is, as you say, likely to experience a large skilled migration and general labour supply shock, which could over time put material downward pressure on wages and inflation. This will, however, be preceded by a temporary tightening of the labour market, as the 334,000 jobs you referred to, which were held by non-residents prior to the COVID crisis, start shifting to locals or residents. As our chief macro strategist, Kieran Davies, has explained in a note he published over at Livewire, these jobs were not previously in the official employment data, precisely because they were held by non-residents. And as they do magically shift into the official employment statistics, as the jobs are allocated to locals or residents, they have the potential to temporarily reduce the jobless rate by more than two percentage points. This is almost certainly one key driver of the radical recent reduction in Australia's jobless rate from 7.4% to 5.1% in May, and also the surge in advertised vacancy rates. And it means that policymakers of the RBA are going to have to traverse the current negative labour supply shock juxtaposed against the spectre of a positive labour supply shock as skilled migration and population growth ramp up in the years ahead. So Chris, the existential question is therefore, when will the borders open back up? To try to forecast this somewhat more rigorously, we have made a few assumptions. Firstly, we think the federal government will not open any borders until after the next election, which would be optimally time for either March or May 2022. 
Secondly, we assume that the federal government will not hold the next election until all Australians who want to be vaccinated have obtained their jabs, which begs the question as to when this will likely be. Thirdly, we assume that a lower bound on this minimum acceptable vaccination rate to reopen the borders will be equivalent to the penetration necessary to be confident of the community capturing robust herd immunity. And fourthly, subject to these decision-making rules being satisfied, we believe that following the election, the federal government will look to slowly allow fully vaccinated Australians to start travelling overseas and vaccinated foreigners to come to Australia conditional on strict COVID testing of departures and arrivals and home quarantine if and when required. This may initially be achieved through establishing a number of travel bubbles, for example, with New Zealand, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, etc., which could be rapidly expanded over time with other destinations. As we noted, opening our borders requires herd immunity to COVID-19 which means that a sufficient portion of the population have immunity either by recent infection or through effective vaccination that is approved by the Australian government. The exact coverage required for herd immunity is not yet known because it depends on factors such as vaccine efficacy, reinfection rates and so on. The research consensus estimate is around 60% to 90% of the total population. The upper end of this range may not be achievable without extending vaccine eligibility to children and will likely require strong government incentives to overcome any vaccine hesitancy. That's right, Yingers, and for Australia, we believe that once around 70% of the total population, or put differently, more than 90% of the adult population have been fully vaccinated, Australia's government will consider opening its borders subject to the various protections you mentioned. The technical challenge for our researchers is therefore figuring out when Australia will likely have vaccinated 70% of its total population or over 90% of all adults. By way of quick summary, based on the research that we're about to explain, Coolabar projects that 70% of the total population or 90.8% of adults will be fully vaccinated by January or February 2022. And we believe that's a conservative estimate. This potentially opens a door to a March election and the prospect of borders starting to open in the middle of next year. So Chris, let's explain our projection methodology in more detail. Our projections are developed using a three-phase process. Phase one involves estimating the time it takes for 80% of the adult population to have their initial jab, excluding children who are generally not eligible for vaccination. Note that 80% of the adult population is equivalent to 61.8% of Australia's total population. We do this harnessing the empirically linear path of comparable nations' actual vaccination trajectories, where it appears that the vaccination campaign has been logistically established and is running at a mature capacity. Australia is currently in this linear trajectory, having vaccinated 28.7% of its adult population at a rate of about 0.51% of all adults per day. Comparable nations vaccinate an average of 0.62% of their adult population per day, or 0.45% per day at a one standard deviation slower pace than the average nation. The global vaccination coverage is shown in charts that you can view online at our website. We have put a link in the episode summary. They illustrate high income nations comparable to Australia and the percentage of their total population that has had at least one vaccine dose. The four nations clearly ahead are Israel, which is an early leader, but since slowed dramatically, Canada, 
which is late but very rapid rise, the UK and the US. Although Australia is the laggard, it does appear our trajectory has just time shifted. That is, it started late, but with no indication of it being any slower than the others once it has ramped up. In phase two of the process, we estimate the non-linear deceleration in vaccination rates from 80% of adults having had their first shot to the idealised 90.8% of adults, equating to 70% of the total population, having had an initial shot, assuming children are not eligible for vaccination. Yes, he is. I think it's worth explaining that we do this by predicating Australia's vaccination path on the trajectory experienced by Israel, which has been demonstrably ahead of the rest of the world time-wise. Based on the evidence from Israel and others, there is some clear vaccine hesitancy once you vaccinate 80% of adults. This is highlighted by the significant deceleration in the pace of new vaccinations, as the chart in our online article shows. Also note that Israel is the only medium to large nation that has hit this saturation part of their trajectory. And Chris, finally in phase three of the projection, we calibrate the time lag between getting the first shot and being fully vaccinated based off the observed intervals between the Pfizer and AstraZeneca shots, adopting the latter's 90-day lag for conservatism's sake. While the dramatic slowdown in Israel's vaccination coverage might appear worrying, it is actually more benign given that children under 16 years of age are not eligible for vaccination in Israel until June 2021. The minimum age for vaccine eligibility differs slightly across the world, either due to low queue priority or lack of safety approvals. For this analysis, we assumed 18 years of age was the cutoff. The second chart in our online summary of this research shows the rate of coverage for adults first shot. You can see that Israel started slowing down around the 80% adult mark, as did Canada, though the UK looks poised to power through. This insight informs phase one of our projection. This is based on the observation that the daily increase in the adult population covered by at least one shot of vaccine increases linearly, i.e. steadily, when the adult coverage is between roughly 20 and 80% range i.e. after logistics are set up and before saturation of the adults that are willing vaccine takers. Note that we use the adult population in order to remove population age distribution differences across nations, allowing their trajectories to line up well as shown in the plot online. Now, turning to the results, Chris. Sure, Yingers. Australia currently has 28.7% of all adults covered by at least one shot. To get to 80% adult coverage, equivalent to 61.8% of total population coverage, Coolabar estimates that it should take about 83 days from the date of this podcast, based on the average experience of the comparable countries in this study, or 114 days if Australia is one standard deviation slower than the average. This forms the basis of Coolabar's prediction that Australia will likely obtain 80% adult vaccination coverage sometime between early September and mid-October 2021, depending on the assumptions one makes. In a similar fashion to the quote-unquote substitute country methodology that Coolabar pioneered in its novel COVID-19 infection forecasting models, we can substitute in the vaccination trajectory of other countries such as the UK, which took 109 days from where Australia currently is to the target 80% adult coverage rate. In our online paper, we have a final table, which allows you to select any individual country's trajectory 
for the linear part of the phase one growth process. Going beyond 80% of adults having had the first shot, Australia will likely experience the aforementioned deceleration in vaccination rates due to some residual hesitancy. As we've mentioned, the only medium to large country having gone past this adult coverage is Israel. It took Israel 41 days to go from 80% adult to 90.8% adult coverage, that is the adult coverage required to achieve 70% total population coverage in Australia. We therefore add this to the above estimate of days to get to 80% adult coverage to in turn obtain the projected time to 70% of the total population or 90% of total adults getting their first shot. And Chris, phase three of the projection is the time between getting the first shot and becoming fully vaccinated. The lags range between one and three months. However, note that as the population gets saturated, the lag blows out. For example, in Israel, it went to 90 plus days. Of course, different vaccines have different time lags between the first and second shots. Whereas Pfizer is roughly one month, AstraZeneca is three months. We remain on the conservative side over this range and assume a lag of 90 days. In summary, Kulabar's research estimates the duration of the three different components of Australia's journey to reaching herd immunity based on empirically observed experiences around the rest of the world. The first phase one rollout takes about 114 days to ensuring 80% of the adult population gets their initial dose. The slower phase two process takes another 41 days to reach 90.8% of adult population, or equivalently 70% of the total population. The final phase three process requires 90 days to secure 70% of total population having been fully vaccinated. This implies about 245 days from the time of recording this podcast and suggests that Australia should get to herd immunity somewhere between mid-January 2022 and late February 2022. The table online shows Coolabar's herd immunity forecast for Australia, predicating off a range of different empirical vaccination trajectories. Now, Chris, I want to talk about why the Aussie jobs data is not as strong as it seems. Last week was an incredible week in markets. We had the fourth largest monthly decline in unemployment on record, and yet the Aussie dollar fell afterwards, care of a prudently dovish Martin Place. Hours earlier, a more hawkish US Federal Reserve triggered a 10 basis point jump in long-term interest rates, only for this to be reversed out one day later as markets digested its communications and higher than expected doll payments. While the Commonwealth Treasury and the Reserve Bank of Australia can claim much credit for our exceptional post-crisis recovery, the drop in the unemployment rate from 5.48% in April to 5.07% in May, just above its Jan 2020 level, conceals much more complexity than the market understands. Chris, can you explain? Yes, as CBA's Gareth Aird has highlighted, the official statistician publishes a broader measure of employment. Now, this is called the Labor Market Account, and it includes non-resident workers. And the key point here is that the broader labour market account tells a very different story to the labour force survey. Instead of the total number of employed persons in Australia being 1% above its pre-COVID-19 2020 peak, the wider labour market account finds that in March 2021, employment was actually 2.1% below its level one year prior. Now, this is driven by the exodus of non-resident workers out of Australia. Between December 2019 and March 2021, the number of non-resident workers slumped by 
333,900 persons, according to our chief macro strategist, Kieran Davies' analysis. And yet these non-resident jobs, which were not a part of the uh, more widely cited labour force survey, have to be filled. So employers have been hiring locals or residents, and we've effectively had 333,900 new jobs that were not officially in the labour force survey start shifting into it. And those jobs that have not been placed with locals are being picked up in the vacancy survey, which is also surging. This helps explain the sharp reduction in the unemployment rate as residents take this newly available work and the soaring vacancy rate as employers advertise unfilled spots. It also explains why the jobless rate in regional markets where many non-residents worked has declined much more quickly to be below pre-pandemic levels in contrast to the capital cities where the unemployment rate remains materially above its pre-pandemic marks. And this was a point that Phil Lowe highlighted in a speech last week. And Chris, the problem for the RBA is that as most of the population is vaccinated over time, borders will gradually reopen. Governments are already creating new pathways for foreign students to return and migrants will follow quickly thereafter. Over the next few years, much of the lost non-resident labour supply could return. Australia is, after all, now one of the most attractive destinations for tourists, students and skilled migrants, given our economic and health performance since the crisis. A cheap Aussie dollar only amplifies our relative appeal. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, Yingers. And if one assumes that 334,000 non-resident jobs are all placed with locals who are looking for work and not folks who are sucked into the labour market, this could have the effect of temporarily reducing our unemployment rate by as much as 2.4 percentage points. Put another way, if borders open and non-resident workers return and take these jobs, the unemployment rate could increase from 5.1% to 7.5%. Although this is a very crude upper bound, it gives one a sense of the influence of the non-resident worker exodus on our jobless rate. And as you mentioned, Chris, in a speech last week by the RBA's governor, Phil Lowe, he touched on these complexities in comments about the central bank plans to get wages and inflation back on track. The RBA knows it is in uncharted forecasting territory, which will include navigating the reopening of borders and the sharp expansion in population growth and labour supply. This could mean that any future bump in wages growth is transitory as the negative labour supply shock wrought by COVID-19 reverses out. In Lowe's speech, which was accompanied by a raft of important new RBA research papers, he delivered several messages. Perhaps the most significant was that despite the recovery being much stronger than the RBA had anticipated, wages growth and inflation remain subdued. In fact, we are getting the wages and inflation results that the RBA was predicting would arise, assuming far weaker growth and significantly higher unemployment. Lowe says, quote, The wage price index increased by just 1.5% over the past year, with wages growth slow in the private and public sectors, end quote. This is less than half the 3-4% to 4% pace the RBA needs to normalise inflation back into its target 2-3% band. Lowe continues, quote, and it is noteworthy that even in those pockets where firms are finding it hardest to hire workers, wage increases are mostly modest, end quote. Lowe also argues that Australia's weak wage growth partly reflects the reluctance of businesses to raise fixed costs after numerous macro headwinds, including the 2011 to 2013 period when the Aussie dollar soared above 100 US cents, rendering many exporters and import competing firms uncompetitive, and the more recent pandemic, which one way or another threatened most companies existentially. The RBA's analysis reveals many employers are relying on non-wage strategies to retain and attract staff, 
Some are also adopting a wait and ration approach. Wait until labour market conditions ease, perhaps when the borders reopen, and until then, ration output. Lowe also highlights, for some, this is a better option than paying higher wages and driving up their own cost base. This is especially so if increases in the cost base are difficult to reverse later on. There is a reluctance to increase prices, and the business expects labour market conditions to ease before too long. By waiting and rationing, firms can avoid entrenching a higher cost structure in response to a problem that might be only temporary. Yes, why our macro strategist Kieran Davies says this reminds him of the dynamic during the global financial crisis when Australian firms did not shed large numbers of staff because the cost of rehiring them would have been too great. It is certainly a rational approach if you believe borders will open up over the next year or two. It also sheds light on the disconnect between the wages and inflation data and Australia's increasingly tight labour market, which will obviously loosen back up as borders become more porous next year. Finally, it reinforces the point that the RBA's forecasting models, which have consistently overestimated wages and inflation for years, are likely to perform poorly in this unprecedented environment. This is why Lowe and his Deputy Governor Guy DeBell have repeatedly emphasised that Martin Place will predicate policy decisions on what they consider to be credible wages and inflation data, rather than volatile jobs numbers and or rubbery forecasts of the future. And importantly, this data will have to convince them that wages are rising sustainably at a 3 to 4% pace annually. And I think the market has probably lost sight or never had sight of what sustainably really means. You'd have to think it means two to three quarters of consistently strong wage data placing the year-on-year rate in the 3 to 4% band. And significantly, the RBA would also have to be confident that this is just not a temporary effect that is an artefact of closed borders. So, Chris, despite this commitment to quote-unquote now casting, the RBA stimulus is still being slowly unwound. On the 30th of June, they will stop lending banks ultra-cheap three-year money at a 0.1% rate, which will push mortgage rates up as banks eventually replace this $200 billion of funding with more expensive wholesale debt. And in July, the RBA will not extend its three-year yield curve target of 0.1% from the April 2024 bond to the November 2024 security, signalling that the first rate rises will materialise around this time. The one remaining tool the RBA has left to furnish further stimulus is their government bond purchase program, otherwise known as quantitative easing, which places downward pressure on long-term interest rates that has slowed the ascent of our exchange rate, notwithstanding extremely elevated commodity prices. According to Westpac's Bill Evans, the Aussie dollar should be trading between 85 and 90 US cents right now based on Westpac's exchange rate model. Evans says, quote, the only thing we can finger that explains the gap between the Aussie dollar's fair value and its current level around 75 US cents is the RBA's QE program, end quote. Last Thursday, Lowe said that the RBA's bond purchase program is one of the factors underpinning the accommodative conditions necessary for our economic recovery, reiterating that it would be premature to consider curtailing those purchases when peer central banks like the US Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank are expected to continue their own QE programs through 2022. Last Tuesday, the RBA's board noted that its QE commitments to date lagged the rest of the world on a relative basis, implying comparatively inferior stimulus. Lowe said, quote, The key consideration in our decision is how the RBA can best support the ongoing recovery of the economy, end quote. He continues, quote, The board wants to see the recent recovery transition into strong and durable economic growth, 
with low unemployment and faster growth in wages than we have seen recently. Over time, this will help achieve the inflation target, end quote. Low lent further weight to what has become the prevailing market consensus, prompted by the AFR's John Kehoe, for the RBA's QE program to evolve in September to an open-ended $5 billion per week initiative that is reviewed quarterly and calibrated based on hard evidence about wages and inflation. This view is now backed by most banks, including Westpac, ANZ, Goldman Sachs, HSBC, RBC, Nomura, UBS and Deutsche Bank. The RBA's resolute commitment to maintaining its stimulus to help Australians secure full employment characterised by sustainable wages growth and inflation within the target ban is a key reason why the Aussie dollar declined against other currencies, despite the stunning jobs data. And if there was any doubt as to what the RBA thought about the efficacy of these policies, it released a rich array of new research papers that evaluated their performance. On the question of QE, the RBA's economists, quote, estimate that the program has reduced longer-term Australian government security yields by around 30 basis points and lowered the spread of state and territory bond yields to AGS yields by 5 to 10 basis points relative to where they would have otherwise been, end quote. They further found that the bond purchase program has not had any substantial negative impact on the functioning of government bond markets. Indeed, most market experts think that the RBA's purchases of 5- to 10-year government bonds have substantially enhanced liquidity with no evidence that it is crowding out other participants. And that's a wrap, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, please feel free to reach out with any questions. You can contact us at info at coolabarcapital.com or reach out directly via the Coolabar Capital website. Please listen to the disclaimer at the end and I hope you have a lovely week ahead. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.